I've always wanted to visit St. Louis. From the Arch, Missouri's Botanical Gardens, and the Anheuser-Busch Brewery, there's so much to do in so little time. This is an impromptu trip. I haven't even had the chance to tell my parents we're going out there. My roommate knows someone, Josh, who stays out there, so it'll be nice to have a local tour guide. The drive took roughly 10 hours from Atlanta after a couple of pit stops, but I think we made pretty good time. It's now 8 p.m., Through the drive, it had been a consistently sunny day at 65 degrees. However, the temperature is quickly dropping. After unpacking for a bit, Josh says, I have a really exciting adventure for us tonight if you guys are up for it. Immediately, our interest is piqued. We ask, oh yeah? What adventure would that be? Now, I don't know Josh, so I'm not exactly sure what he thinks an adventure is. I'd consider myself a pretty adventurous person, but I'm really hoping it's not a hike in the woods in the middle of the night or something. Josh asks, I know Katie likes beer. Do you? I say, of course. Now an adventure to a brewery is exactly what I can get behind. After looking us over, he tells us to change into more athletic clothes and we'll hit the brewery. It's officially dark as we head out the front door of Josh's apartment complex. Driving in, it looked like a nice enough area and was walking distance to the Anheuser-Busch Brewery. While it was a bit cold for my liking, we walked on. The streets were dead, except for the occasional car or two. As we would pass houses, curtains quickly closed. After a while, we stopped seeing lights on inside the houses. Josh led us down a side street, and now there were no lights or houses. No cars drove by, and it was quiet. Too quiet. We stopped talking long ago, and just the sounds of our footsteps remained. As we moved forward, each step became louder, giving away our location to whoever, or whatever, was listening. At first, this path seemed like it would have been a shortcut, but then I realized Josh never told us which brewery we were headed to, or how far of a walk this was going to be. He abruptly stops, scans the streets, and in an extremely low voice says, Stay close, and be quiet. As the last words leave his mouth, he turns and slinks to the side of a worn-down building. Katie and I do as we're told and follow him, trying to be as quiet as possible. In the darkness, it's hard to tell if this building is a house. The dimensions seem off, and there aren't enough windows. In the distance, Josh rounds the corner. I quicken my pace to keep up. Katie is also falling behind in the darkness. I make it to the corner ready to round it, and stop dead in my tracks. Just on the other side is a small hut-like shape, door hanging open in the darkest void I've ever seen. A strong wind blows and the cold air swirls around me, moving the small door, creaking softly as it swings back and forth in the wind. I walk towards the small hut. Every fiber in my body is telling me this is not right. I need to get out of here. Is this where Josh went? Just as I'm about to push the door open, I hear from behind me, Hey, over here. I turn around, and Josh and Katie are huddled by the back door of the building. I take one last look at the dark void of the small hut, nervous to turn my back on it, like something might reach out from the void and grab me. I sidestep away from it and close the gap from myself with Katie and Josh. As I reach them, Josh gives a small rap on the door, and it slowly opens. Inside, there are two people waiting for us to enter. They introduce themselves as Seth and Corey. We walk into the small room. Seth hands us each a beer. Limp original recipe. I open mine and take a sip. It's unremarkable, tasting just like a Pabst Blue. We all go through general introduction, enjoying our beers, when I can't help myself and ask, so what exactly are we doing here? Seth's face lights up and he says, ever been in a cave before? Now, I've been caving. I wouldn't say I necessarily like being in a cave, but I am not about checking out in front of all these people. Corey leads us to a staircase, descending into the darkness of the basement. We turn on the flashlights on our phones and head down. The stairs are creaky and the air is damp. We huddle in a small room of the basement. There's what looks like a sewer grate on the floor. Corey picks it up and moves it aside. Corey goes first, then Josh, then Katie, me, and Seth following behind. We have to use both hands, and none of us have headlights, so we climb down in darkness. 
I have no idea how far down we must climb. It feels like an eternity. I brush up against something on my back, and Katie says, Step down. You're about to be at the ground. Her disembodied voice echoes off the walls, and I can tell we are in a cavern. It is so dark down here. Seth's made it down, and we all turn our lights on. I was right. We are in a cavern. Larger than I imagined. As we start walking, we are in single file, stepping where the other did before. Your steps have to be meticulous. The ground is slick because of the mud and water. It wouldn't take a lot of slip and you would hurt yourself. We make it to a small circular hole in the wall, just large enough for an adult to squeeze through. My claustrophobia is getting to me. I don't like small spaces with no way out. Corey's the largest, so he decided he'll go first and show us all that we can make it through. As I crouch down, I see I have to get on my stomach. There's just inches of space between my back and the ceiling of the hole. I have to shimmy my way through, only catching glimpses of the light Corey has. Suddenly, all the light is gone. I'm in complete darkness. Due to my own breathing, I can't hear anything either. I say, Corey! Scared to speak too loudly. I'm nervous for something to collapse on top of me. I say, Corey! Again, a bit louder. Still, there's no answer. I crawl on. Soon my hands hit a dead end. I feel to my left and there's space. I feel to my right and there's also space. No one told me which way to go. Out of the corner of my eye, I see a glimpse of light to the right. I turn that way and start sliding down, face first. I can't grab on anything. It's too slick. I'm moving too fast. It's like a slide. I crash out of the hole onto the floor. I see a bright light shining in my face, blinding me. I hear a voice. You good? It's Corey. He moves the light out of my face, offering me a hand to help me up. I take it graciously. Everyone else arrives, being more graceful than myself while landing from the crevice. As we all turn on our lights and the cave is better illuminated, I can see a rectangular hole in the ground. It's filled with mud and debris. There are soft footprints around the edge of a person's bare feet, smaller than my own, more like a child's. We're all looking at the footprints when out of the darkness, a ball rolls towards us. It's red and covered in mud. It looks old and worn, like it's been down here for forever. It stops just in front of me. I hear from the darkness in front of me, play with me. Goosebumps crawl up my skin. Did anyone else hear that? I turn around and everyone's gone. There's no noise except for the sound of dripping water. I shine my light around. I don't see where they could have gone. I call out to them, hey, where'd you guys go? I can hear the hysteria in my voice. I feel like I'm losing. Suddenly, I hear the sound of soft music as well as laughter. <laughs> Thank God, I say out loud. As I start walking towards the sound, I step into a soft spot of mud. It's up to my ankle. I try to pull my foot out, however, it won't budge. I'm starting to lose my footing because I keep slipping further down into the mud. Now, it's halfway up my calf. There's nothing to grab onto. With one hand free, I try to steady myself onto the ground. However, that hand is also sinking into the mud. Both of my legs have become stuck, as well as my hand. There's no longer music or laughter. The dripping sounds continue, deafening me. That and the sound of my own heartbeat, I so faintly pick up the sound of movement, something slipping in the mud. I strain my eyes to see what it could be. Maybe it's Seth or Corey. Maybe they noticed I wasn't with them anymore. As I'm straining to see, something rolls from the darkness. It's the same red ball from before. Again, I faintly hear, play with me. The light on my phone starts to dim. This is not happening. My phone's dying. The darkness is swallowing everything around me. Just as the last light dies, I hear something sliding closer to me, and I realize this is no ghost, and I am not alone. 
Hey guys, it's Holly and Brittany, two sisters who take a deep dive into the history of the world's most haunted places and paranormal happenings. This is Sisterstitious, and it's about to get spooky. like to state that the Lemp family has a great deal of history and we did our best to summarize what we found. If you want a more in-depth look at the Lemp's history and haunting details, I would highly suggest purchasing Rebecca F. Pittman's book, The History and Hauntings of Lemp Mansion. We would also like to include a trigger warning as this episode contains examples of suicide and miscarriage. It was my desire and that of the Pointer family that the story of William Lemp's legacy be told from the viewpoint of compassion. These people lived. They created a brewing empire that at one time was the largest and best in St. Louis and ranked ninth in the country. They set records that still stand in beer brewing history. They laughed, loved, married, divorced, raised children, traveled, and dreamed. There is so much more to their stories than a few of their tragic endings. Rebecca F. Pittman. The Lemps were known as being one of the wealthiest families in St. Louis history before Prohibition hit. But what would cause four of these family members to reach the point of suicide and kill themselves by gunshot? Was this family cursed? Follow along. You be the judge. Since every good ghost story starts at the beginning, that is where we are going to begin. Johann Adam Limp came to America from Germany in 1838. He left his wife and young son behind in hopes that someday soon they would be able to be reunited again in America. During this time, many Germans were coming over to America to give themselves a better life. He truly believed that if he worked hard, he would be successful. He decided to open up a convenience store where his inventory consisted of groceries, vinegar, and other things, but the most important of his supply was a beer he learned how to brew in Germany. This beer was known as lager, and it was very different than what was being brewed in St. Louis during this time. The beer at this time was very dark and heavy, while lager was lighter and more refreshing, with more hops that added a more delightful flavor. The beer became so popular that he was able to close the door of his store and start investing in his new company, the Western Brewing Company. He just started with a small brewery, but later opened a saloon known as Limp Hall. St. Louis summers were very hot, and this posed a problem to the lagering process when needing to keep the beer cool during the fermenting stage. He decided to take advantage of the caves that lay underneath St. Louis, since they consistently kept such a good environment for brewing lager. The cave could be kept cool with blocks of ice that were brought from the Mississippi River. Limp's Brewery was one of the biggest in the city, and in 1858, his beer won first place at the annual St. Louis Fair. Adam Limp passed away in 1862, and while the success with his brewery was incredible, it didn't take off full force until his son William took it over. William started to work immediately and decided to expand the brewery. He created a new plant in 1864 at 3500 Lemp Avenue. It covered five city blocks at first, but grew to eventually cover 13.7 acres. The brewery continued to be the most popular in St. Louis. In 1876, William decided to buy what is known today as the Lemp Mansion from his father-in-law. This sprawling mansion held 33 rooms, which William decided to renovate to make more to his liking. During these renovations, he built tunnels to the caves that also continued to the brewery. In these caves, he added a swimming pool, banquet hall, and theater. Not only did Lemp focus on his own beer, but he also helped fellow brewers, which you may know today. They were Frederick Pabst and Adolphus Bush. While these companies are still very popular today, they did not beat the success of Lemp at the time. And even though Lemp's beer was extremely popular in St. Louis, he came out with a new brew called Falstaff Beer that became popular from coast to coast. Now we will move on to discuss William Lemp's family. As knowing his family will help us better understand the unfortunate circumstances that began to follow. William Limp was married to Julia. Julia was born in St. Louis, but her parents also came from Germany in hopes for a better life in America. 
Julia went through nine births, though she lost one of her babies during birth. Now, even though her husband was very hard at work with his brewery, Julia was working hard at home raising her eight children and keeping up with her social status. During this time, it was expected for a family with this wealth to be held to certain standards. Women in the home had to make sure their children would be successful while at the same time maintaining a beautifully decorated home, hosting social gatherings, and keeping a lavish wardrobe that held outfits for every occasion you can think of. William and Julia's children are as followed. Anna, the oldest, William Jr., Louis, Charles, Frederick, Hilda, Edwin, and baby Elsa. From the history we know, they were a loving family who lived in a very happy home. That is until everything started to go awry. William Limp had planned on having Frederick take over the brewery when he was ready to retire, but unknowingly Frederick had a lot of health problems and passed away at 28 from heart failure. This started William Limp's downward spiral. After losing his son, he was no longer the man that everyone knew. Since continuing his father's business, William was extremely hands-on with this company and always wanted to take the next step to make it better and more successful. The Lint Brewery had a reputation, and William wanted to keep that reputation strong. But after Frederick's death, he stopped being as hands-on, only sometimes going into the office, and when he did go in, he was very quiet and to himself. Instead of taking the main roads to work, he would go through the cave so that he didn't have to run into anyone. If his mental state wasn't bad enough at this time, one of his good friends, Frederick Paps, this is who Frederick, his son, was supposedly named after, passed away. Because this was all too much for William to bear, on February 13, 1904, William went up to his bedroom and shot himself. William's son, William Jr., but some called him Billy, took over the brewery. William Jr. was married to Lillian, and she was referred to as the Lavender Lady because she always wore such bold and bright colors. Their marriage was rocky, though. Some believe it to be because William Jr. never really got a childhood since he was bred to take over the family business after Frederick died, so he missed out on all his playboy years and resented Lillian for it. At first, he would give Lillian $1,000 of spending money a day to get her out of the house, but that wasn't enough to end their issues. Billy was extremely entitled and ended up throwing lavish parties down in the cave, getting very intoxicated and sleeping with prostitutes. His stroke of good luck would end, though. At this point, the marriage had had enough, and they decided to go through a divorce. During this time, divorce was extremely scandalous, and since they were such a powerful couple in St. Louis, many people from the city would go down to the courthouse to watch proceedings in person. It was their modern-day soap opera. Since there was so much debate about William Jr.'s violent nature, Lillian did end up getting full custody of their son. If this wasn't enough for William Jr. already, competition continued to steadily rise. Nine of the larger breweries in St. Louis got together to create the Independent Breweries Company. Lemp's business was slowly losing money. He wasn't giving much attention to his business and his equipment started to deteriorate. He also was dealing with the loss of his mother who sadly passed away due to cancer. Lemp stopped trying to keep up with all the new innovations that the brewery world was putting out, and even though his money was running out, he decided to remodel the family home to include offices for his brewery. He did end up marrying again to a woman named Ellie Lindbergh. Then, in 1920, Prohibition hit, and he could no longer keep his brewery open. They did try to create an alcohol-free beverage, but it flopped. Selling the equipment and auctioning the buildings, William Jr. sold the Falstaff logo to brewer Joseph Griesedek for $25,000 in 1922 and ended up selling the buildings to the International Shoe Company for $588,000 when it was worth about $7 million before Prohibition. After his company shut down, William Jr. slipped into a depression. It was also said that he was facing an enormous amount of debt left by his father. He ended up shooting himself in his office in the Lemp Mansion. Now, while Elsa Lemp did not work at the brewery, her story is still very important and extremely interesting. Elsa was born on February 8, 1883. She was the youngest child of William and Julia. When Elsa got older, she took a lot of interest. She was known as being very independent and quite accomplished when it came to many endeavors she took on. She was not only into fashion like most upper-class women, but she owned and drove many automobiles. She also owned her own horse called Odds Fish, 
and he won in many races. After both her parents passed away, Elsa was known as the wealthiest single woman in St. Louis. Elsa Limp was to be married to Thomas H. Wright on April 12th. Since she was to be married, she would finally receive $100,000 of her inheritance, which is about $25 million today. The wedding took place in the home of Gustav Paps. After they came home from their honeymoon, they moved into 48 Portland Place, which was built in 1905. This home was on the market in 2016 for $1.5 million. After they were married and settled into their home, Elsa very sadly gave birth to a stillborn baby August 18, 1914. After this horrible tragedy, the adventurous, fun-loving woman understandably started to fall into a depression, which they commonly called spells during this time. She was given laudanum to help her deal with the side effects of her depression. The drug was primarily made up of opium, and it used to be sold without a prescription. Ultimately, she decided she wanted to separate from her husband, filing for divorce February 1, 1919. She claimed that her husband brought out her very worst sadness and anguish, claiming that he acted like he didn't love her and spent time away on purpose to avoid her. She then began living and traveling alone, until once again she was reunited with Thomas when she went on a trip to New York. They decided they wanted to get back together, and as this may have seemed like two lovers rebuilding their happily ever after, Elsa died from a gunshot wound 12 days later. It was claimed that Elsa shot herself, but there are so many discrepancies in the story that many believe it was actually her ex-husband who shot her. Charles and Edwin, the two brothers who were left behind, were not part of the family business and were living their own lives. Charles did end up renovating the mansion back into a house and lived there, but he grew more and more odd as time went by. He became extremely fearful of germs and wore gloves all the time. Charles then decided that he too would commit suicide. Tragically, he didn't want to leave his Doberman behind, so he shot the dog first and then shot himself. He was the fourth family member to shoot himself. He was found on May 10, 1949, by one of his staff members. Edwin, who wanted a reclusive life, lived in a secluded estate in Kirkwood. He eventually died of natural causes, but his last wish was to have all of the priceless family artifacts to be burned. All the lumps were buried at Bellefontaine Cemetery in St. Louis. Much of the mansion's history after Charles Limp committed suicide is unknown until 1975. The mansion was auctioned off in 1950 and became a boarding house to transient population. Many of the tenants considered the house to be haunted. They heard knocking sounds, people walking along the darkened corridors when no one was there, missing objects, and lights acting like they have a mind of their own. Many of these stories cannot be backed up or referenced by other individuals. Through the degradation of the mansion, its hauntings became famous, and the mansion was sensationalized. During this period and well into the 1960s, the neighborhood surrounding the mansion began to deteriorate, adding an even more ominous feel to the boarding house. Even though the rent was super cheap, many of the tenants came and went quickly. The area that once housed millionaires now started to carry dilapidated buildings. It was just a depressing atmosphere all around. Much of the grounds and carriage house that belonged to the mansion were overtaken by the development of Interstate 55. The boarding house was losing business and was nearing flop house status. In 1975, the boarding house was purchased by the Pointer family, and they began the grueling process of restoring the mansion to its previous charm. The Pointer family restored the mansion to a restaurant and inn, keeping some of the ornate, original details it held in its previous life. During the restoration process, it is said to have been difficult to keep workers. Many stories revolving around the restoration process involve the same strange knocks and phantom footsteps. However, the hauntings seem to be amplified. There is one report of Pointer's son hearing a loud bang outside his bedroom door with no source for the noise. Staff members would hear strange noises, see bizarre happenings, vanishing tools, and even drawers and cupboards being closed one minute and open the next. Many of the workers would leave the job and never return. Due to the consistent hauntings that seemed to pique the interest of the neighborhood's residents, Life Magazine paid a visit to the Now Inn and dubbed the Limp Mansion as one of the most haunted houses in America. The hauntings continue. 
Here are some of the other haunted things guests and workers have claimed to experience. Many guests and workers of Lump Mansion tend to have some trouble with keeping their room keys in one designated place. Keys tend to go missing constantly, making their way from a table to a new door lock without being picked up or moved by guests. Some visitors have gotten so fed up with their keys being displaced that they decided to check out of their rooms early. This sounds like this could be an easy mistake for guests or housekeepers to make, but it is such a common experience that there's no way this is just a simple coincidence. Keys aren't the only things that go missing or get misplaced. When workmen were working on restoring the property, their tools and belongings would constantly get misplaced. Another area of the house that tends to have a lot of activity is the attic. It has been stated that people have spotted a young boy peering outside of the attic window. Many have related this story to a tale that has never been proven, the monkey-faced boy. It is thought to be an illegitimate son of the limps that he kept hidden from the public because he had deformities and limp was embarrassed of him. Another story that has been passed around is that he was a son of William and Julia and that they had him so late in life so they wanted to keep him hidden and safe from the monstrous world outside. While many people have debunked the life of this child, the attic is still known to have a spirit of a child or children. Guests have left toys in the attic only to come back and see that they have clearly been moved or played with. Other people have claimed to hear kids asking them to play with us and help me. Another sighting that is common is one of a man in a full suit and top hat. His dark shadow tends to be seen leaning against walls in dark hallways. He isn't always seen with his full body appearing. Sometimes only his top half has been visible. Many believe this is Lemp, dressed to the nines in his evening attire, heading out for a night on the town. There is also a piano in the inn, and many people have heard eerie notes being played at random times. As they approach the room the piano playing is coming from, no one is in there. This wouldn't be an actual haunted house without some phantom piano playing now, would it? The Limp Mansion isn't the only area that is haunted. As mentioned before, the cave system under the Limp Mansion and Limp Brewery are a wander to explore. The cave system, which is now part of Cherokee Cave, is said to be yards long. However, with weaving tunnels that dead end to unknown spots, it's hard to tell just how far these caves go. Many of the systems that were used as an underground walkway have been washed out or collapsed within itself. In the prime of the Limp Dynasty, there were three known cave entrances. However, there may have been even more. One entrance is from the Limp Mansion itself. There's evidence within the basement of the end as well as the corresponding point within the cave where the mansion sits. An additional cave entrance is said to have been found across the street from the mansion, but it's now sealed up. The final and now only entrance into the cave is at the Limp Brewery. Through this entrance, explorers can still enter the caves with the owner's permission, of course. While these caves once held lavish, exclusive parties, which obviously came to an end, it seems the cave is very reminiscent of these elaborate festivities that once served as an entertainment for the upper class. Some very lucky people who have had the chance to see the caves before they were closed off have claimed to hearing the sound of music and women chatting and laughing. The cave today is flooded and muddy. Stepping around can be tricky as you could step into a shallow pool or into a pool so deep you don't know what will pull you under. The air is thin. The further you go, the harder it is to breathe. If an explorer stopped and turned off their lights, all they would be able to feel is the crushing darkness that disorients and can drive anyone mad into believing that they are not alone. The Lemp Mansion is still owned by the Pointer family and is still open today as an inn and restaurant. There are four suites in the inn, the Lemp Suite, the Lavender Suite, the Elsa Suite, and the Frederick and Lewis Suite. Prices range from $180 to $420 a night. You can host events and weddings in one of the many venues provided. The inn also hosts ghost tours and mystery dinners. If you are too spooked or simply cannot make it out for a visit anytime soon, you can go to their website at lempmansion.com for a full virtual tour of the mansion, loft, and grand hall.
Hey, Brittany. Um, I really enjoyed researching this story, and I wish that we could have fit all the amazing and deep history in one episode, but our episode would have been like five hours long. So, yeah, and we're both sitting here with some beers to kind of like get us in the mood for this part of our podcast. Mm-hmm. So, cheers. What are you drinking? I'm drinking a Paps in uh, in honor of the Paps family who were close friends with the Limps. What are you drinking? Very nice. I'm not a Paps fan, and I'm drinking sweet water because that's all we had in the fridge. Sweetwater 420. Well, you know. we're representing Atlanta. Yep, and uh, Stanley just walked in here, so hopefully he doesn't ruin the audio. There you go. <laughs> so if you hear a dog, y'all, it's my dog, Stanley. All right, so there was a lot that we were able to learn. And one of the biggest things, I mean, obviously, is that it was such a shame that the Lemps couldn't keep their brewery afloat. Um, and I wonder if... Billy wasn't dealing with such intense demons that he was if he would have been able to keep his brewery through prohibition. I know that some of the other brewers were able to do that for different reasons, but why do you think, I know we talked about possibly the family being cursed and that could have been a reason why. Why do you think that maybe they weren't able to keep, or Billy wasn't able to keep it going? Well, um, one really cool fact that I found out while researching the cave system was underneath St. Louis in the same cave system that's now the Cherokee cave system, but not a part of what the limps used, there is something called, quote unquote, the bone pit, Mm -hmm. where basically it's just this large pit. Someone was drilling into the ground to make a well. And they found just, like, this whole big thing of bones. Like, we're not talking one or two animals. We're talking hundreds of animals. And at the time, it was animals that hadn't really been seen. Not, they weren't, like, hogs from today. They were, these were fossilized bones. So, I mean, I'm speculating. I have no idea. Um, They could have, maybe it was a sacrificial site. Maybe, um just a bad area, some other kind of stuff happened before uh, St. Louis was industrialized. We, I didn't do a lot of research behind the bone pit, but that is one of my theories, because if you find a pit of bones, you know, it's definitely not a good time. Yeah. Why do you think they went under? Well, I mean, I think just because he didn't, like, keep the innovations up and going. The Cherokee cave system that you really got into researching, which is the cave system that they use that's underneath St. Louis. I think that that's, like, such an interesting thing to think about. Like, they could have just kind of tapped into something that they shouldn't have, right? And then that could have, like, set a curse upon their family. But we do know that... You know, some of the other brewers in the area like Paps and and other things like that. So that if something happened, they already, they, they like kind of knew, like I know Bush particularly like already knew that something like Prohibition was going to happen, right? So he was already trying to like kind of find things that were going to work for non-alcoholic drinkers. Um, And honestly, like. Out of the 1,300 breweries that were out there before Prohibition hit, only about 100 were able to survive. It's crazy. Yeah. And so I know that a lot of these companies didn't expect Prohibition to last 13 years. And they were able to get by by selling not only non-alcoholic beverages, but selling yeast and other ingredients to make beer. So, like, while it was illegal to sell beer, you know, you could sell the ingredients to make it. Because there were people out there that were making it. And there were speakeasies, right? So they were just kind of trying to get by with anything. And I know that Bush actually, like, just started creating, like, different types of vehicles, too. And one of the vehicles that he made was a bus, like a van for police officers. So they could take in bootleggers and moonshiners. 
So, and then once Prohibition was over, there was such little competition out there that, you know, these companies were just able to kind of just, like, get out there and rise. Seems like Anheuser-Busch had some knowledge from the inside, and especially, you know, taking out the competition, Prohibition ends, and they're one of the top brewers in, yeah. in America, and, like, still, they're everywhere. They're literally everywhere, so... I don't know. It's just kind of funny. It's kind of conspiracy to think about. Yeah, I do. I think they must have had some inside information. And I also wonder what made Lump's Lager like so much better, right? I like, I wonder if we could taste it now, what it would taste like. Like, would it taste like Bush? Would it taste like Paps, like PBR? I wonder how much differently it would taste if it would have tasted any differently, right? Or if he, or if Adam Lump just kind of like, because he was the first person to come to the United States and actually start, you know, the lo- like lagering beer, if that's why, because he was the first person, you know. Well, I think today his beer might taste kind of blah because beer has come such a long way since then, and now it's almost any man's game. If you have a good idea for beer, you know, you could create – something so delicious i love beer yeah um so in like you said maybe just because he was the first one to bring it over or one of the first ones to bring it over that people were like this is different this is good it's light it's crisp it's not you know those super heavy dark beers i'm one and done i can't drink multiple of them something that they talked about was that they just really um it was like part of a staple in St. Louis for them. So, yeah. You know, you love you love what comes from your city most of the time. So, maybe it was also the That's true. That's a good point. Um, yeah, you know, they were like no other city has this. We have it. Go us. It's so delicious. Yeah. I also what I also found interesting doing this research is that I guess because so, you know, so many Germans came to the United States during this time, so it was, like, very normal to kind of, like, consume beer throughout the day, that it was expected for these brewery workers to, like, be drinking beer throughout the day just because it was, like, fuel for them, right? Like, it was, mm-hmm. you know, I read that it's, like, it was, like, food, right? It's calories, so it was just, like, expected to for people to just be drinking beer as they're, you know, working in these breweries. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and wouldn't that be fun? Just sit and drink well, beer. In Europe, um, in a, before water filtration really took hold, they drank beer instead of drinking water because it wouldn't make you as sick as just some water that you would have. So I do think it is a part of, you know, their everyday lives and tradition that beer is not oh, I'm going to drink 10 beers and they can't stand up. It's just a part of their culture and they just, there's nothing wrong with drinking it. And if you just have one on the job, that's not, not as frowned upon as it is today. Right. Yeah. Well, I think there's a lot of people that take it in excess. So I get it. (laughs) Yeah. So moving on to some of the limps, I found Elsa's story the most interesting. I think when you really like, dive into her story she was just such like an eclectic character from the rest of them seemed Mm -hmm. to really like have found her own footing especially as a female during that time and just like inventing like her own cool life that she was living but the biggest thing was that you know part of the lump's history is that four of them committed suicide in the same way but that we, like, you know, a lot of people really don't think Elsa was the one who killed herself. And that it was her husband. Um, and just kind of not knowing if it was, like, yeah, who, like, if it particularly was her husband with the gun being moved. And not calling, you know, the police right away. And, you know, the servants having completely different stories. It's just super interesting. Was there anybody that you found interesting in the Lemp family? Um, someone that I found interesting just because it's completely inaccurate is Zeke, the monkey-faced boy. Mm-hmm. You know, I feel like when 
more legitimate people talk about the Limp family history, they go on to say Zeke did not exist. They don't know where this story came from. He really just didn't exist. And when you talk about, when you listen to the stories of people who just want to give a good scare, they always talk about Zeke. Now, I'm not saying there's not something going on in the attic because it is one of the most haunted places in the house, but to say that it was a child that had some sort of deformity is just, I don't know. Yeah. It's interesting to read why they talk about it Mm -hmm. versus just not talking about it in general. Right. So, yeah. If, I don't know. I just thought that piece or that character in the limp history and why he was invented um, was super interesting. Yeah. I mean, I think in terms of, like, all haunted places, it's easy to get carried away. And I think that, you know, a lot of it is just hearsay. Oh, yeah, my cat's down here, too. You know, just lovely guys just being in my house with me today. Anyway, try we try so hard to make this great. And anyway, it's fine. So There's a lot special of- place in heaven for animal lovers. So that's <laughs> yeah. all ever- anyone needs to know. I just think that, yeah, I mean, it's a lot of just telling stories and people come up with crazy things and crazy conspiracies. So I'm sure that like half of the things that we read about might not be true, right? But. Oh, for sure. It's our, you know, what we wanted to do is try to make this as accurate as possible kind of try to leave the fake stuff out but you know obviously we're not in these places like we're not paranormal investigators so we're obviously just like not gonna know it's all speculation yeah yeah something that i forgot to mention about elsa that i thought was super cool was that elsa was going to board the titanic she wanted a first class ticket and i guess she wasn't going to board because she would have had a ticket but she couldn't board. Well, she couldn't get on because there was no more first class tickets. And she was just like, I'm not getting on the Titanic if I can't get a first class ticket. And in today's money, a first class ticket to the Titanic would be $4,500. Yeah. What? Yeah. So if any of y'all thought you could uh, be on the Titanic in first class, probably not. But, well, I mean, I'm, I'm sure there's some first-class plane tickets that are that expensive, so I don't know. Oh, yeah, but, you know. <laughs> I'm not a frequent first-class. Yeah, I'm not a fr- frequent first-class flyer. <laughs> Only if it's, like, my birthday and I'm flying alone. Then True. I can get a first-class. Treat class. yourself. Yeah. So, speaking of traveling, if we could go, I'd love to go to the Lump Mansion, obviously. Um, oh, yeah. It's so cool because it's just, like, a time capsule of the Gilded Age, um, and I mean, you go in there, and it's almost like you are staying in their house, like you are a guest in their home, and all of the rooms are so different, right? There's four different suites. If you could stay in any room, which room would you want to stay in, and why? I don't think it would really matter which room I would stay in. Um, I think they all would have some element of activity to them. It definitely looks like a grandma's house, not to hate on the Limp family, but when I was looking through all the rooms, I was like, I feel like I'm going to my grandma's house. Um, hey, it was like I said, it's a tire. I mean, I, I know mean. they kept, they kept the detail real. Yeah. Yeah. The, uh, the owners, but um, I would really want to eat at their restaurant. Mm-hmm. I have heard it is some of the best food. So while... I guess staying in one of the rooms would be the cherry on top. I would really be going to tour the house, see the attic, see the basement, which has one of the entrances into the caves, and um, just eat at the restaurant. What room would you want to stay in? So eating at the restaurant would be cool. I'd like to do, like, their mystery dinners that they have. That seems like a lot of fun. And their ghost tour. Mm -hmm. I would probably want to stay in the lavender suite just because, you know, it's like a sprawling space. You get a dining room. You have two mantles in the room. I don't know if there's, like, working fireplaces anymore or not. Um, But it's just really pretty. And it just, like, seems very elegant the upstairs so in the attic so the Elsa 
suite and the Charles and Lewis suites are in the attic. And I know the attic has a ton of, you know, energy in there with hauntings and whatnot. And I mean, you literally have doors that like go right into the, I would say unfinished part of the attic. And it just is so, it's so scary. Like it's so yeah, spooky. Yeah, that's where all the creepy stuff happens. Yeah, right. Like <laughs> this is where people have thought they've seen Zeke whoever that little boy is. And there's been, you know, talks of children asking for you to play with them and stuff up there. So or to help them. Yeah, that's right. And like, what was them. going on up there? I don't know. But uh, maybe they got stuck oh, no. behind the little door. Yeah, definitely really spooky. And like we said earlier in the episode, like you can go online and look at all of the like video tours of this house. And it really is amazing because you get to see all the detail. Once again, like last episode, I think it would be fun to stay in the hot spot of the house. So staying in the attic would be pretty cool. If I was, like, no. going to go for that purpose, if I was going to go just, like, enjoy myself um, and feel like, you know, the lavender lady, Lillian. Would you dress up? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Why you not? say it in her suite, would you dress <laughs> up? Yeah. Pictures to come, guys. I'll dress in lavender. I think that that would be fun, but, you know, I don't know. Okay, so um, in the basement, they call the entrance to the Caves of Gates of Hell. If you could go down there, would you? Yeah, totally. So do we know why you can't go down there anymore? It's caved in on itself in certain areas, and um, a lot of it's so dilapidated that yeah. there's a risk of it caving in on itself mm-hmm. and then i don't know how cave systems work with who owns what because i know it's part of the cherokee cave system but i don't know if there's like a care cherokee cave society that owns it but there is the limp haunted brewery who mm-hmm. owns the limp brewery and yeah. that's one of the only entrances that are still open so they will take people down there i don't know how much they can explore i found it's called house of the occult i found it online i don't think it's open yet but they do they're it's supposed to be a haunted house which like honestly i already don't like caves i don't like to be in caves they're scary i went to one one time and someone was like let's turn on the lights off and it was terrifying i was like all right this is just where i'm gonna die i don't think they do the haunted house anymore i think they used to I you think, think they used to? Yeah, until, like, the cave system started to become, like, a, yeah, like, a, a safety risk. Yeah. Do you know that, like, some people have been able to go down and see the caves and, like, see, like, parts of some of these entertainment spaces, like, part of the swimming pool, part of the ballroom, part of the theater, which is super mm-hmm. cool, but you have to be, like, a somebody super special to get to go down there and see that, and you're probably signing a waiver. Oh, so, yeah. If you die, they're not held responsible. But um, I think that would be, yeah, that would be really cool. I'd love to go down there. And the caves down there don't even really look like caves anymore because they made it look like actual living spaces. Like, it's rectangular and it has columns. And you can see the outline of the swimming pool that's now, you know, like, filled with mud. Yeah. And there's, like, a waterfall in the cave somewhere. The cave is huge. Um. I sent you a picture of it earlier. I'm going to go back and look at part of the cave system. So in the cave system, and we can post this to our Instagram after the episode, it is just the area that the limps occupied was just such a small area um, from their mansion to the brewer house, but it extends so far back, and some of them are just pools of water, so... It's not accessible to see what's past that point. So this cave system is larger than what a lot of people have been able to see. But other parts are called the Pit of Death, the Dragon Passage, Hmm. the Low Wall. It links up to one of the cemeteries in St. Louis. I don't know. This cave system just gives me really bad vibes. Just Hmm. super bad, don't want to go down there vibes. I wonder how everybody else that's like from st louis feels like i wonder how they feel about this cave system I also yeah wonder i wonder mean, walk over it every day yeah Ugh, i don't I also know. wonder if it's well known 
for people in St. Louis. I might sound like such an idiot right now. People in St. Louis might be like, uh, duh. But I don't know. I've never been to St. Louis, so. Well, I just found out somewhere that I worked two years um, has an entire city underneath it. So they may not know. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. And like, right, like maybe we'll talk about Lake Lanier one episode. And like Lanier apparently was like covered a ghost town. So yeah, it happens. Yeah, I guess so. Yeah, this is all really, really interesting. I'm excited to keep going and keep learning about all these places. It's going to be a lot of fun. I don't want to give away too much about what we're going to talk about next week. But I did read Jan Bryant Bartell's book. So it was amazing and I can't wait to talk about that. That's all I'm going to give away right now. So if you really want to do the work to figure out where we're going to talk about next week, you can. But I don't want to give too much away. Okay. Okay. Make them work for it. Yeah, exactly. You guys are still listening. And we and I do want to I do want to add, which is something that I wanted to add at the beginning, but we're not very good at this yet, and we'll get better. Like seriously, thank you every single person that has listened to our podcast, is like just taken the time to listen to the first episode. That's amazing in itself. But to like let us know how much you love it. And then people telling us that they didn't expect it to be, like, as good as it was. Thank you. I mean, that's a compliment, right? (laughs) Like, we're working hard and we're really excited. And it's been a lot of fun. And it's been fun to do this together and kind of see what works. Mm -hmm. And, you know, using both of our creative processes to get this going, figuring out, you know, the layout of our episodes. It's been a lot of fun. So we just really want to thank everybody. Yeah, thank you, guys. It's been You know, I like to say, like, oh, this isn't something I'm super interested in, but I know other people who would be interested in something like this. Like, one of the biggest draws for the Lint Mansion was the caves for me, which is not even, it's like such a side quest of this story, but, you know, just, it was cool because you got all the Lint Mansion history and I got all the stuff for the caves and somewhere in there someone's going to be interested, right? So we are super excited to be able to bring all of this to you all. Yes, yes. And we hope you continue listening. And, you know, we're open to taking any feedback. Um, And if there's any places that you guys particularly want us to talk about, you can send us an email at sisterstitious at gmail.com or send us a direct message on Instagram or just send us a text, you know? Mm -hmm. So we're excited. We will see you guys next week. Thank you guys for listening to our second episode. And we'll see you all later. Bye, guys. Bye. This episode was produced, written, and edited by Holly Daniel and Brittany Murray. Cover art by Ben May. We want to thank you for listening to this production of Sister Sisters.